0: students podcast. My name is JT Stead and I'm your host. I'm also the student and outreach pastor here at Redeemer Church and what you're about to listen to was a sermon that was preached at our Wednesday night gathering from 6 30 to 8 30 with our students. So I hope that the sermon is encouraging and a blessing to you today. Thanks for listening. Amen. Thank you Jay. I think it's the first time I didn't have to pray before my own sermon. All right uh tonight we are going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So if you've got your Bibles, please turn there. If you don't know me, my name is Gabe Whitaker. I am a 7th grade, there we are, 7th grade boys small group leader. I used to intern here with JT and um, it's been a little bit since I've had the opportunity to preach, but I am really looking forward to this and uh, can't wait to share what God has laid on my heart out of his word. Uh, we've been going through our series of the gospel presentation, I don't know if you guys have Seen this card, um, but we're on the last one. We're on point number six, which is Jesus rose from the dead. So we're going to be talking a little bit about that and what that means. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The year is 1917. A fierce war is raging on between the British and the Germans. Hundreds and sometimes thousands of men are dying every day from bullets, from famine, and from disease. In the midst of trench warfare, word breaks out that the Germans are setting a trap that will result in the massacre of 1,600 British soldiers. There's no clear way to warn them. A decision must be made. Two young men are commissioned to infiltrate German lines in order to deliver an urgent message to the infantry division many miles off. The only way to proceed, however, undetected, is on foot. The men traverse through gunfire and barbed wire while passing by innumerable lifeless bodies, both human and animal. They run, hike, climb, and crawl through dozens of miles of terrain on their quest to deliver their invaluable message to the fellow British soldiers, and by a miracle, they survive. They reach the troops, warning them of the grave danger ahead. At first, the ears of the hearers are reluctant, but they soon understand what's at stake, and they follow the orders of the two young men. Now, for these young men, there was no message in their mind that's more important than the one that they were asked to deliver. There was nothing that could stop them besides death itself from proclaiming the message that they heard to the people that needed it most. It was of the highest priority. It was, as you could say, of first importance. Now, the question I want to ask you tonight is, what was of first importance from the Apostle Paul? Well, let's read our passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and then he appeared to Cephas, who is Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. The title of my sermon tonight is The Truths Of the resurrection, the truths of the resurrection. My first point, point number one, is that Christ died for our sins. This is the first truth of the resurrection. That may sound kind of funny, the truth of the resurrection that Jesus died, but we're going to look at the whole picture of the resurrection from start to finish and then what it means. So our first point is that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. First question, did Jesus really die? Or did he just pass out on the cross and they bury him after that? The answer is yes. Romans were masters of execution. They put together all of their experience of the cruelest methods that they could kill a man and compiled it into one thing that we call crucifixion. And they were experts at it. There is actually not a single account of any man ever surviving the crucifixion. If Jesus were to survive it, that would have obviously been known. I want to give you a brief overview of what Christ suffered when he died. Jesus suffered from hermitridosis while praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was suffering so much that the pain, in his blood, the pain required that his blood vessels burst in his skin, and it poured blood down the sides of his face throughout his body as he sweated and prayed in agony. He was tried by Pontius Pilate, and there was found no fault in him. He was scourged. A Roman soldier wielded a leather whip that featured flayed straps, and it was embedded with small lead balls. The whip is swung again and again, first bruising the skin, then cutting it, then ripping the skin and the flesh underneath it. He was bleeding severely at this point. A flexible branch of thorns was bent to the shape of a crown and pressed upon his skull. This caused more blood to flow from his wounds. Jesus was then forced to carry a rough, heavy wooden beam. As it was placed on his shoulders, it splintered into the deep wounds that he had already sustained. Jesus was then tied to his cross and had large metal spikes driven into his wrists and into his feet. On the cross, there was no relief. Jesus' lungs were being compressed, and they could not expel any air. The only way to get more oxygen was by hoisting the body up, but this drove all of his weight on the nail in his feet. Soon, his muscles began to fatigue and cramp. Sweat and blood continue to pour down his wounds. Agonizing pain is seizing him, and his body begins to shut down. Christ's body expired in a matter of hours on the cross. A soldier's spear was then driven into his torso to confirm his death. And when the blood and water poured out, Jesus' words were startlingly clear, it is finished. Now, there were thousands of men that were killed by the Romans' method of crucifixion in similar fashions. However, Jesus' death was not just one of the many. It was a very purposeful death. And not just a purposeful death, but a purposeful event. In fact, you could argue that his death was the most purposeful event in the entirety of human history. From the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, the the breaking in that of the relationship between God and man, God's story of redemption began and ultimately found its focal central point in the death of Jesus. Now, how does God's plan center on the death of his son? Well, look at verse 3. He died for our sins. Christ died for our sins in accordance to the scriptures. And he did this in accordance to the Old Testament scriptures, the prophecies about the coming Messiah. I want to turn to Isaiah 53. I just want you to listen to this. Listen to these words that Isaiah speaks, prophesying about the death of Jesus. It says, But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray and turned away, every single one of us, all to our own way. And the Lord has laid the iniquity of us on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus was the substitute on our behalf. The sins, the punishment that should have been inflicted on us, was instead inflicted on him. Last week, if you were here, you would have heard Darren preaching a message to us about Jesus as our substitute, as the perfect substitute, as the one who would take our place. Jesus, on the cross, bore the wounds that we deserved and the blows that we were owed. He took the full wrath of God so that we could receive the full grace of God. And as amazing as this truth is, that Jesus died for our sins, there's, there's much more. His death only tells a partial story. And that leads me to my second point. Christ was raised from the grave. Oh, let me flip back to our passage here. Let's read our first sentence again. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So did Jesus really rise from the grave in his physical body? Yes. Jesus rose in his physical body. If Jesus, the master and the Lord of our faith, could not overcome death, what hope do we have? What hope do you have? But because Jesus rose bodily from the grave, we can have hope and assurance that our resurrection will also take place. After we die, if we trust in the Lord, we will rise from the grave as well and enter eternity with the Lord. Think about this Critically for a second. Take a step back. Would the church exist if Jesus didn't rise from the grave? Would the church exist if Jesus did not physically rise from the grave? To help you answer, there's a great quote from a famous pastor. And he says, Critics have denounced the resurrection as a hoax and fabrication, but they've never explained the power of such a fabrication to produce men and women who gave up everything. Even their lives, if necessary, to love and follow a dead Lord. Why on earth would the apostles, would the early church members give up their life? They were literally signing a pledge to die. Because that's what happened to Christians in the early biblical times. When the church was initially established, it was illegal to be a Christian. You couldn't come to a Wednesday night service. You couldn't come to church on Sunday morning. In fact, if you came to church, you could be dragged off and eaten by lions. That was one of the punishments that the cruel Emperor Nero inflicted on Christians. And yet, the Christian church not only survived, but it thrived and it grew. They did not give up their hope because Christ was truly raised from the dead. And yet, there's more to the testimony that Paul gives us. Not only did Christ die for our sins and rise from the grave, but he returned in the flesh. Let's keep reading and continuing in verse 5 here. After Jesus was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures, he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. He appeared to Cephas, that is, Peter and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time. So question, did Jesus appear to everyone when he came back? What what does that mean? Why does it say did he appear? Well, Jesus appearing to people did not just mean him physically showing up. It wasn't just him being present with these people. And the reason that we know this is because in Luke chapter 24, there's a, a story after Jesus has raised from the dead, there's two men who are walking on the road to Emmaus. You guys may be familiar with this. Actually, we just went over this in children's ministry. So if you guys serve on Sunday mornings, you would know this. These two men are talking and they're saying, oh, this Jesus guy, he was, we thought he was God. We thought he was the Messiah, but he's died. And now what are we supposed to do? And Jesus comes up and he interacts with these two guys. And he's asking, hey, so what are you guys talking about? And the men are like, haven't you heard this Jesus guy claimed to be the Messiah, but now he's dead and now we don't know what to do. And so what does Jesus say? Jesus saw their lack of understanding and he pointed it out that beginning with the Moses and all the prophets he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus took the time and he said, "You know me and you know me as the Messiah. I am the Messiah." And he looked back at all of the Old Testament scriptures that pointed to him. And he provided them as evidence and they believed. So Jesus appearing then is a particular decision to reveal himself to his followers and to demonstrate the truth that he was the Messiah. Let's keep looking here at our text in verse 5. Jesus appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. Cephas is uh, another word for Peter. It's just a different translation. The Apostle Peter. Why is Peter singled out? Why does Jesus appear to him before he appears to anyone else? Well, maybe Jesus appeared to Peter first because he knew the condition of Peter's heart. The last interaction that we see, that we have in the Bible between Jesus and Peter, is in Peter's denial. Jesus prophesied to Peter saying that before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. You will deny all of your association with me. Peter doesn't believe him. But what happens? Peter denies him. And Peter's overcome with shame. Jesus is then taken to the council. He's tortured. He's severely whipped. And he's crucified. Can you even begin to imagine the shame that Peter must have felt? He betrayed the one thing that he vowed to never betray. He turned from the one man whom he said he would always follow. And now Jesus is dead. Where's Peter supposed to go? What hope does he have? And the truth is that maybe you feel like Peter. Maybe one of you tonight has that in your heart. Perhaps you feel far from God. You know him. You've experienced him. You felt his presence, and yet you've betrayed him. There's other things that turn your heart from God. But what does Jesus show us in this passage? We see that he pursues those who are far off. Christ is appearing to you now through the preaching of his word. And he longs to comfort you and to redeem you. That is his very heart. He is gentle and lowly towards sinners. So, why then does he appear in the flesh? Well, as we've kind of seen, my fourth point leads us to the final conclusion is that Christ provides us with hope. Christ provides us with hope. Let's keep reading in our passage here. So Jesus was raised from the, from the grave on the third day in accordance with the scriptures that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then of the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. though some have fallen asleep. Now, when you read this, I don't know um, what jumps out at you, but something that jumped out at me is the word fallen asleep. Why, Why would Peter say that? Why would he say they've fallen asleep? And the the truth is that this Greek word used here can mean both literally falling asleep, like passing out like hardcore nap, but it can also mean a physical death. So you can use it for either or. But Peter chooses to use this word that could mean falling asleep, even though it's clear. He's talking about believers who have died. Why would he do that? Well, he's emphasizing that even in death, a Christian's hope is not ultimately stated, grounded in the world. It's grounded in heaven. It's grounded in eternity. The entire rest of this chapter, chapter 15, I would greatly encourage you to read it. It's incredible. Says, it's used as a reminder to believers that our hope in Christ is essential and that our hope after death, and that it is foundational to our faith. It is essential to our faith now, in the present life, that we believe That we will be resurrected with Christ and we have a confident hope in that. And in fact, later on in in chapter 15, if you're looking at your Bibles, you can look at, at verse 17. Paul makes the point that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Your faith is worthless. Do you hear that? Your faith is worthless. It's garbage if Jesus didn't raise from the grave. It is futile and you are still stuck in your sins. So am I. I'm still stuck in my sins if Jesus did not rise from the grave. And it's because Jesus overcome, overcame the power of death and its dominion. Chapter 15, at the end of the chapter, it says, The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? There is no sting for the believer. Because death is... It's just a doorway to eternity with the Father. It's just the step to get from this present life where we're exiles, where we're walking through, where we are aliens in this world, to our Heavenly Father, whom we belong to, whom He has redeemed us for, and we will spend the rest of eternity with Him in the way that we were supposed to. If Jesus isn't raised from the grave, what is the point of righteousness? What's the point of pursuing holy living? What's the point of striving after heavenly things? If Christ isn't raised, there's no point. But because he is raised, we can invest our whole lives for the sake of the kingdom. Because we know that our lives are worthless. Our lives are fleeting. They're like a vapor. They will be gone in an instant. And there's nothing we can do to stop it. But instead of putting our stock, putting our efforts, putting our energy, dedicating our life to doing good things and getting good grades and doing well at sports and making a lot of money, ultimately, it's not going to matter. Ultimately, it's going to vanish. I heard it once said that there's no U-Hauls behind hearses, and I thought that was really clever. When you die, you're not going to take any of your stuff with you. It's going to stay here. But your soul is what matters. And In order to spend an eternity with the holy God, we must repent and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Christ died for our sins, that God raised him from the dead. We see that he's appeared to witnesses. He appears to us now through his word. And because of that, we can have great hope in the present day and in the future. Because our hope is in Christ and it's unmovable and unwavering and unshakable, we may have hope.